Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to Boisterous, this is Benjamin Boyce, and this is our first interview episode, and I'm very excited to bring it to you. In this episode, I sat down and had a conversation interview with Terry Matson. Terry has been a pastor for over 20 years at the West Seattle Church of the Nazarene. Terry is a, a great guy, and we had a great conversation. I've known him for a couple years now, and I would consider him a friend. Hopefully he considers me a friend, too. Uh, he's, I've known him through my fiance's family, who's known him for decades and decades. And every time I get a chance, I like to pick Terry's brain on things. So this is just a great opportunity to sit down and talk about things like religion and politics and really get his take on the issues of the day. And so we covered a wide variety of things, including the existence of God. We talked about living into the good, the problem of evil for religion, the problem of evil in man. We talked about racism and American exceptionalism, capitalism, socialism, immigration, all that good stuff. I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. And so without further ado, here's episode four of Boisterous. Yeah. Your job is to make me sound good. Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I have as my guest today, uh, Terry Matson. We're sitting here in his church in West Seattle, uh, Jesus Christ Church of the Nazarene. Is that right? Just Church of the Nazarene. Just Church of the Nazarene. I'm not sure Jesus would want to claim <laughs> ownership, so I whatever. <laughs> well, okay. Well, any, why might that be? <laughs> Because we who uh, claim to be his followers, and are, um, usually like uh, the people of Israel before, and like his followers in the time of the New Testament when the church's memory was fresh, screw it up. I mean, we, we don't get his message well. We don't live it out well. Um, I, does he claim us? Yes. He's never, he claimed Israel, and <laughs> my word. Um, uh, the refusal and stubbornness of these good people who he chose from before time, I, I think at some level, um, never got the message and God never rejected them. Disciplined them, pushed them, prodded them, called to them. Uh, yes, but never never abandoned them. So I don't think he abandoned the church. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, we do it badly. I see. Well, so Jesus was from Nazareth, right? Yes. And that's where the church gets its of name. Of the Nazarene. Of yes. the Nazarene. So we claim him. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. In fact, uh, the truth of the matter is, in its original intent, you really would have called it the Church of the Undignified. Um, because that was the intent. We are the Church of the Nazarenes. The Nazarene was a small nothing village uh, out in the middle of northern Israel. And uh, Judea, outside of Judea, who can, they considered themselves the real people. And uh, so um, that was their, their nickname was Shoot Town. They had uh, they had nothing to commend themselves. So when we take the word Nazarene, we really mean that we are supposed to be following in in his steps of of nothingness, of identifying with people where they really are and the brokenness of their lives. Truth is, you're sitting inside of a very old 100-year-old building that has potential of being uh, filled with beauty. 
So that kind of in and of itself says that we really don't follow well, doesn't it? Kind of a little bit. Well, so that I've known you for a little while now, for about a year and a half or so, and I've been to your church a couple of times, and I really like it here. It's lovely. The, the building is 100 years old. It has an incredible amount of character. Every room has, is just absolutely gorgeous in its own way. Totally agree. And the community that you guys have here is you know, equally gorgeous and unique in its own way, too. And I, I've, I've always wanted to kind of get my head around the different denominations of mm -hmm. Christianity. And you and I have talked about it mm -hmm. briefly before because I've asked you if you could kind sure. of give me a nutshell of it. So it sounds like you just gave me something about the Nazarene that I didn't think of before. But would it be accurate to say then, to sum up what you said, that it's, it's sort of all about finding the community as it is wherever the church is? and then helping the people around sort of find the, the beauty in, in life and, and through the brokenness and all that? Yes. Uh, in fact, the vision of the Church of Jesus, as opposed to the Nazarene Church, of which we are a part of a much larger historic community, we're not anything. We're not outside the mainstream. We're, we're inside Christendom at its heart. Um, but the beauty of the Church is, is that is the purpose. God came to earth in the flesh as a way of affirming that we are made of dust, because he created us out of dust. Now we, the dust comes from where? The stars. So we have this, this dualism in us. We, we hunger for immortality. We hunger for uh, the visions and dreams we have that, that the stars ever draw us forward. But the truth is we're so much dirt. And, um, <laughs> and so, so Just the, dirt bags. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. many respects. And, and so the purpose of the church is to live inside the dirtiest places in the world and help recreate and restore the vision of uh, Adam, Adam, humankind, uh, the vision of Adam and Eve, our first parents, metaphorically, mm -hmm. uh, and, and to, to see God's will come to the earth just as it is done in heaven. That's the purpose. I, I like that, uh, that idea of it a lot, actually. And uh, on this podcast, this we're on this this would be hopefully our, our fourth episode that we put out and Peter and I haven't gotten to the point where we've t we've talked about religion all that in, in very much mm -hmm. depth so I haven't actually talked about my religious views in the podcast but mm -hmm. just so it's clear because I want that to come up during our conversation I'm somewhere between atheist and Christian and okay. you and I have sort of talked about that recently mm -hmm. too and one of the things that's brought me Aren't we all? well so I would love to talk about that because one of the things that Peter and I want to do on this podcast is just be able to make some progress through conversation with people in our own beliefs and our own thoughts mm -hmm. and our understandings about things. Because as we've grown up, we've found that some of the most fulfilling ways to get to know yourself and others and build relationships is through the spoken word. And I think that's pretty much, that's at the heart of, of Christianity. It's the heart it of, of relationships too. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what's brought me more from the if atheist... If I can interrupt for a second. Yeah, go ahead. The spoken word, which jumps out of the pages of the written history of the church. See, the Bible didn't fall out of the heavens on golden tablets that were perfected and forever framed. It is a human document that arises out of one tribe over a period of 2,500 years, really. Certainly 1,500 years in the gathering, in the writing. And um, uh, so it emerges from the dust. And, and the belief inside of it is that God is breathing all the way through it, both in its, the original events, in the, the Jewish and, and Christian church as it interpreted those events, many often reinterpreted them, reapplied them, and, um, and now even today. So um, 
I'm taking it sideways. I forgot where we're going. Uh, <laughs> the, only, the only thing that, that I said, aren't we all? What I mean by that is, at a very personal level, we're not going to talk about my darkest secrets because I won't give them up. Um, <laughs> no, unless we'll you have them, and then we'll talk about them. Um, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And they're, and, and they're in all of us, too. That, I think so. That's true, and, and I, I know that doesn't usually make it to the surface in any given conversation, our darkest secrets, because we all, have, we all have shame and we all have an aversion to sharing the things that we're most ashamed about ourselves with others exactly. because it makes them so real. It's, it's like saying, I'm as bad as I think that I am when I'm by myself in my own head. So in terms of following Jesus, I can only say that I'm being converted, not that I am. I can only say that I'm growing into this relationship, not that I owned it. And then the other thing that I think is true is I, 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 there isn't a human intuition where I really know that I know that I know Jesus. I don't have a doubt about that. I can't prove it to you. I can't make it real. I can't mathematically, scientifically, or rationally, or in any other way evidence it. But, I, but it is true. I know that I know that God is. And and that he loves me and I'm in a relationship with him and with the whole world thereby. Having said that, I have all kinds of doubts, including my doubts about what I know that I know. So, um, and when, if I ever stop having those doubts, I've ceased to be a follower of Jesus in the deepest sense. And, and so, in that sense, depending on the day and on whether I've taken my, my meds properly or not, you might find me at the heart of it. So anyway, go ahead. Well, uh, that, all of that is actually pretty similar to, to where I think I am or, or maybe where I can see myself going. And over the last couple of, uh, well, maybe over the last year or so, I've actually managed to sit down and force myself to read a, a lot of books that I've been meaning to read for years. And it's sure. given me some insight into how the you know religious person's mind works and you know at the core of it is actually this the the eternal struggle of faith and and doubt correct and as you just stated if you ever cease to actually have those doubts and struggle with that on a daily basis then you've sort of lost connection with what's at the core of that's right because the point of the word is that it comes off the pages of the text and into a human form in jesus of nazareth and according to the Christian tradition, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth, this living word, is living in us. And so if God is breathing in us, um, I don't know how we can't doubt. Can I ask a question about sure. what sounds like a contradiction but might not be? Mm-hmm. So as you just said, you know you know that God is real. But you also have, have regular doubts yes. about some things, I don't know if, about the belief in God himself, but is that, a, is that a regular doubt you have or is yeah. that something that's concrete? Well, as close to anything, I believe that God is. I believe that God is terribly good. Good, not terribly good. <laughs> that's a contradiction. <laughs> but not, not just incredibly good, but is incapable of anything other than goodness. The, the definition of goodness then mm-hmm. would be God and the characteristics of God. And Jesus of God. personifies that or makes that human, mm-hmm. or real, tangible. Um, but what makes me doubt is the reality that there is a lot in this world, including my own soul, that is not good. And I, I can't reconcile those two things. 
Now, I have a lot of good friends who have reconciled it, and it's a fairly, um, it started with uh, Whitehead in the, in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it was called process theology. Now it's, it's more what's called open theology, which is to say essentially that, and, I, and this resolves the doubt issue, but I think a mystery's lost in it. So, it, which is, they're saying that God doesn't live apart from the universe. God lives in the universe only. And that it's coming from a postmodern perspective where the event is what is important, the continuing uh, uh, explosion of, of the miracle of molecules, the explosion of atoms, the, 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 ex, the explosion of life everywhere that has at its very heart this, this seeking of unity in an incredible diverse experience. And so, so Whitehead and, and many uh, open theologians argue that, that God lives inside this universe, that God is not all-powerful, uh, not all-knowing, although uh, God can know everything that everyone and every part of the universe, which is God in essence, is experiencing. Th that is satisfying in terms of, of resolving the issue between doubt and faith, but it's exactly that satisfaction which causes me to draw back and say, You can't be so sure. Uh, not only can I not be, I don't want to be. I don't want a God. I don't want God to simply be another part of the broken universe. I really do want God to be above it and yet imminent and loving inside of it. Outside of it and I, therefore being able to be perfect. Exactly. In a sense. I want the tension. Now I have no doubt that the, the Trinity of God, which is which is essentially a um, unique to the um, church as opposed to Jewish or Islam or um, other even pre-personal faiths like Buddha. Um, this idea that God is a trinity of three persons so profoundly uh, unified in love that, that that creates a community known as God. Um, I want to hold on to that with my whole life because that means several things. It means before the first rock was created, there was love. It means that um, before the Big Bang or whatever else brought this several billion years in, into, into space and time, mm -hmm. there was a communal uh, goodness and love that, um, that, that, that is greater than a thousand universes, and we now have a sense of how vast the universe is, and so that's beyond our ability to imagine. And yet, um, that that God would um, be faithful to the wounds of God's creation, and would so identify that that God who never experienced hatred, jealousy, uh, anger in the sense that we experience it, that is, that is uh, controlling, uh, that, that that community of persons uh, chose to enter into my lust, to enter into our greed, uh, like the United States, to, to cooperate with that which is, with, which is genius in us and keep moving the story forward, but to taste the death inside our wounds, uh, which, is, which is the heart of the cross, which is the heart of the Jesus story. Um, I want very much to believe in that God. And, and that's like believing in a fairy tale. And um, so that creates doubt, the awareness of that. And yet I choose. And I mean that. I choose to not let God be anything less than that uh, because 
the alternative is boring. <laughs> well, that's funny. So, so just to jump back to, because you said a lot there, and it was very interesting. I tried to keep track. So I'm jump back to the, the argument from Whitehead, was that it? Mm -hmm. Sort of the beginning of the century. Mm -hmm. It actually sounds very much like a Stoic idea. Mm -hmm. um, the old Greek philosopher, Stoics. So um, their thought was that almost in like a, a deist sense, there, there was a God, but that it permeated everything in the material universe and that everything sort of was made up of God particles or mm -hmm. God atoms mm -hmm. and that human and, and beings. I think and, there's a sense in which that being true. Like, like that's, in your view, that, that's true in a way, but it's also that, that God as an entity exists outside of the material yes, universe exactly. as well. I don't think there's any, any explosion of any molecule in the universe where God is not present. The downside of that is that puts God at the heart of the insanity and evil of Hitler. But well, it puts, it puts God in a position where he creates a universe wherein a Hitler can exist. And so isn't that, that sounds almost has like the, the power to end it. And so that, well, isn't that one of the, I'll put on my atheist hat here and, and you know, no, absolutely. levy you know, tough questions from the atheist side of view. You, the problem is you're not going to be satisfied with my answer because I have that same hat on. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I might be satisfied with it because, well, one of the one of the reasons that I've been transitioning from the atheist camp to the Christian camp is because I've I've become a lot less satisfied with the materialistic questions and materialistic answers. Ultimate emptiness. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really touch on the the spirituality or the mm. in, in immense depth of of the human soul and the, the human experience. So anyway, my it, question it, is, I'm taking you sideways and forgive me. You know why? Why? Because if it's only about material reality. At the end of the day, ethics don't matter. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is power. At the end of the day, God has to be about power. And I think the very freedom of a Hitler to emerge is, is evidence that God is not about power. In other words... The or the fact that Hitler collapsed is evidence that it can't be all about power. Yes, yes, in the most profound sense. The universe reflects God, so every experience in the universe ultimately reflects the character of a communal being who is holy and good. And so if, if one instead just takes materiality and power relationships at its core, then, then you, you are placing yourself against the very core of what the universe is. It, so that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it wouldn't have, you know, a couple years ago, that wouldn't have made sense. I would have thought, that oh, sounds like gobbledygook. But now I, 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 have, I have a couple of years of lived experience where I've actually started to notice, you know, my inner experience and sort of my, my conscious, my conscious has started to speak up loud enough for me to hear it, or I've started paying attention and it was always as loud as it is, something like that. But either way, I've started to notice that when I actually act in accordance with what my conscious tells me and, and what I believe to be good. You mean good, conscience, not just consciousness, right? I do mean conscience, yeah. Okay, sorry, I, should, I put the emphasis on it. I've always wondered why those two. I should look up the origins of those words. But anyway, so yeah, I've noticed that when I actually act in accordance with what I think is good, almost objectively, like when I, when I look at other people, for instance, and I say, it's almost the easiest thing in the world to judge what other people should do, you know? Mm -hmm. When I apply that same standard to myself and I go, oh, why aren't you acting in, in the way that you think is good? And then I actually start to act it out in accordance with my conscience, then things actually work out for the best. And it's, and it's like, I'm not even necessarily trying to and make things work alone. out. And not for, for me alone, people, yeah. for, it's almost like when I actually put the other, this is it, when I put other people before me, mm -hmm. 
because I feel that that's right and I, I see others around and I, and I think that they ought to put others before them because I can see the consequences of when they don't. When I, when I take that onto myself, things work out better, my relationships flourish, the individuals that I put first flourish, I flourish, the community flourishes. And so in principle, the idea that when you actually work in accordance or act in accordance with God's laws, that you're, you're almost in harmony with the universe, you're in harmony with how things ought to be, all of that makes an, an infinite amount of sense to me now. And I mean infinite because it's- Have you it's, been reading C.S. Lewis? I did read two C.S. Lewis books. Yeah, yes. uh, uh, just recently actually on a cruise, I read The Screwtape Letters. Have you, oh, have yes. you read that? Five. Oh my goodness. I wanna talk about that in a minute, but okay. I, I had a question like five minutes ago and I didn't get to spit okay. it out, so I have to now. So the atheist question, it, I've heard it characterized as like the toughest atheist question. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's the case. But anyway, it's the problem of evil. It's mm -hmm. if, if, if God can be all good and he created the universe, then how can we have this problem of, of, of evil and horrific tragedies. Uh, I, I won't even use Hitler. Let's say Hitler, he's, he's something else. I'm saying um, the, the infant who gets you know, typhoid fever or malaria in Africa and, and dies in the cradle, something like that. That's even harder. Yeah. The, the evil that comes from human choice is easier to deal with mm -hmm. than, than what we call natural tragedies. Mm -hmm. And the answer to the natural tragedies, I have no explanation. None. Um, I told you to be unsatisfied. <laughs> <laughs> However, I have ways that I live with it. Um, and I'm going to go back to the personal because it still is the bridge. So when you are describing living into the good, not only does the universe expand, but those who are sentient beings, specifically humans, the people you are helping become more fully human and you become more fully human. Because the very, and here's the difference between conscience and consciousness. Consciousness is the awareness of gifting. Conscience tells us there's a reason for the gifting. And that is the good, that is love. And if we live into that, then we become more conscious, more aware, more fully human, more like God. Even as we are keenly aware of our mortality and our humanness and that we, we, our purpose is not to grow up and to be a God, mm -hmm. but um, because, because our purpose is to be always dependent. My next breath may or may not come. It's not my choice. It is the universe's choice or, I believe, God's choice. And um, so, it, so here's what I'm convinced of. And, and a saint of the 13th century, I'm Julian of Norwich. Those were the psychologists of those days. Uh, and and uh, she was called an anchoress. And anchoresses, there were a lot of them. There was, and, and in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, they were abundant in the church. And they would go through a, a ceremony which was half funeral and half marriage. And they would dedicate their life to live inside a room that would not be much larger or bigger than the room that we are in, which is about 20 foot long and about 10 foot wide, 12 foot wide. And uh, they would live there the rest of their life. They would never leave that room, except they would be given permission by the priest on occasion to go out into the garden uh, and there. But their purpose was prayer. And there would be a window open into the church itself so that the nuns could come and gather the refuge and 
serve food, serve Holy Communion, etc. They wouldn't even participate in worship except through the window. And then there was a window out to the community, and the purpose of that window was so they could give counsel to people who came to them asking for help. They were the psychologists at the time, hmm. and uh, they were contemplative in nature. And in one of her visions, she asked God to, to help her see the uh, suffering of Jesus, and she became very ill for about a year, exceedingly ill, much pain. And in that, she experienced several visions, and one of the visions uh, she writes about, and she was very popular in her day, her writings to this day are very popular. Um, she, she had a vision where she says, where, where she says that sin is necessary. Because when we, when we experience the wounds of love not fulfilled, the darkness that comes when we walk away from love, um, that it expands the darkness into us and we want to avoid it so we move towards the light. And so, so it has this, this productivity and moving us away from emptiness, i.e. materialism. If you, knew how, if, you, if you only knew how good it was, then you wouldn't understand how good it was. You exactly. need, need a little bit of bad for contrast. Exactly. And then she says because of that, God, Jesus showed her that Jesus does not blame us for our sin or for falling into it. And that the cross is God's removal for every human being that's ever lived and ever will live for sin. So it extends to the entire universe. I assume it extends to Lucifer and the fallen angels. And that it covers all sentient beings in the universe. The only issue then becomes, do we live into Jesus or away from Jesus? Do we live into love or away from love? And um, so her, in one of the showings, Jesus says, I assure you that all manner of evil will be resolved. It will be healed. It will be wiped away. And when it is done, all things will be shown to be good. And then Jesus said to her, both great and small. So I have to believe. And if I didn't believe this, I would not be a Christian. Um, that God somehow got, has got it all worked out, that even the worst horror that comes at this incredible risk of sentient capacity for love and fear, for doubt and faith, for anger uncontrolled, and great passion and anger that's very controlled against unrighteousness, that the dualism in all of that, that that God has it worked out, and the cross is the splitting of it. The cross is also God's way of going inside of it and saying, you're not alone, I experience it with you, I will taste it. I who never, we in the Trinity, who never knew what death tasted like, we're gonna taste the fullness of the death of your sin. And that's how we're gonna work this thing out, and it's gonna be worked out for everybody. I did not believe that I would not be a follower of Jesus. Does that to you explain then the, the, the natural tragedy? It's just the idea that all of the sins, big and small, will be explained in the end as being good. The Christian doctrine is the, the natural, and I can't, I can't give you a scientific basis for this, but I, I'm not certain that it's not true. The Christian doctrine, the early Jewish doctrine, is that before human falls, the human falls, uh, that is moving away from righteousness, that nature was in balance and that nature itself is affected. I have no idea if that's true, or if it's just necessary that you have chaos uh, in order to get goodness. But, the, but well, I'll tell you what is different. In every other faith tradition of that time, of those epics, Babylonian, Sumar, 
uh, all the stories from the various tribals. The chaos was the same. The whole world was filled with chaos. The difference is, all those other stories have chaos as a result of the gods. And humans were just trying to appease the gods and stay outside of all their arguments because they could get caught up in them and destroyed by them. Whereas the Jewish faith starts out with the same chaos and says that the spirit hovered over the chaos and brought forth a world that was perfect and good. That's the first poetic ritualistic story of creation. The second story of creation in Genesis 2 tells us that God acknowledges what is not good, the loneliness of Adam or humankind. And so God gets down in the dirt and starts again to recreate and, and work with this loneliness. And that, that I think, is satisfying. That, that gives me both the purpose of creation and the recognition that it's not perfect. And um, I can live inside such a universe if I know that God is good. If God, if it's just a matter of rolling the dice, I have no desire to be in that universe. I can sympathize with that. And actually, coming to an understanding, just in, in, in a, a peacefulness in my own mind, that for one, I, I'm not perfect, and that the recognition of the fact that I'm not perfect, being the sort of the fundamental thing you have to accept before you can set yourself out on the journey to at least aiming towards something approximating perfection, mm -hmm. knowing that you'll never get there and you will always fall short, but that life doesn't seem to be worth the struggle if you're not at least aiming upwards for something that you can always continually strive to, to improve yourself on. As I thought about that when I was, I think, tw 20, 21, something mm -hmm. like that. And I, mm -hmm. I remember I was, I, was, uh, I was in the backyard and I was gardening. I decided to start up a garden because I felt like I needed to do some personal growth, personal development. And I, over the course of a couple of months during the summer as I was tending this garden, this sounds like it was something out of the Bible now that I'm saying it out loud. But as over the course of tending this garden, you know, I'm like pulling weeds and I'm watering and I'm taking care of it. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus. Okay, well, I'm kind of like this garden. I constantly need work. I'm always needing maintenance. I'm always sprouting up um, bad thoughts and th things that aren't actually suiting me very well and aren't, aren't helping me in any way or other people. They're sort of these weird little, you know, vile temptations or thoughts that I ought to just do away with. That I'm kind of like that. And... I want to be this, you know, ideal garden, sort of like the the Plato ideal, right? Of the mm -hmm. the shadows on the cave, and so I kind of finally realized that snapped into my head, and I I, I formed kind of a a uh, sort of an ethos off of that, and I thought, well, I will from this point forward recognize that I am imperfect and in constant need of tending, and I and I will just I'll, I'll keep refining my understanding of what I'm aiming for here, but I at least know that like. I'll, I'll never get to who I want to be because that's too that's too far away. But I will start aiming for it, and ever since then things have just for me they've they've gotten better exponentially. And it and it wasn't because I was looking for things to get better exponentially necessarily. I was just looking for for me and my relationships to improve. And putting that first has clear clarified so much of life in a way that nothing else ever had. And just recently, just in the last year or so, I've started, uh, I've started to bleed that in with Christian doctrine. And so this will take us to C.S. Lewis, because one of the people that I, like, that I like a lot these days to hear their thoughts about this stuff is Jordan Peterson. We've, we've talked about him on the podcast a couple of times. I think I've even talked to you about him briefly. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that he blew my mind with was the idea that 
whether or not God and Satan literally exist, the world operates as if their existence was the case. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that to be undeniably true. I, I haven't gotten to a point where I know if, if I think that the, the devil and the God literally exist. That's why I'm somewhere between atheist and Christian, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But just trying to govern my behavior with the understanding that the world operates as if they exist has, has also clarified things for me. and, and made Which is also easier. rational because it happens to be... Um, my three disciplines in college was religion, speech, communication, and sociology. Sociologically, I don't know of any culture that does not premise that reality. That there's a good and, and an evil. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And personifies it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and acts it out and mm-hmm. ritualizes it and symbolizes and it. And makes it a story. And, and turns it into a narrative, exactly. And that's and these these grand narratives are sort of at the underlying substructure of our societies. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to I wanted to one say that the, the screw tape letters just to throw a plug out there to anybody who's listening. That's one of the best books I've ever read. It's just a short novel. It is, inf- it's, it is so clever, it's so witty, it's enthrallingly interesting, it, and it's, the perspective that it's written from is just genius. C.S. Lewis was f- so multi-talented. I mean, the he fact was. that he could write f- so you know, lucidly through fiction and nonfiction is just the coolest thing. So I'd like to read more of him, but this book in particular was interesting for me because so I already had that. Great divorce by him? Not yet, no. But I have you a, a list. So th- that just the the idea that you know the world operates as if God and the devil existed. Mm-hmm. Either way, I, I really think the Screw Tape Letters does a good job of getting that getting Great. to that point because it's it's all told from the perspective of a couple of devils who are basically trying to tempt this individual through life to get him to sort of turn away from God and and towards the Father below. They call him anyway, really interesting, cool book. So my question for you that I had a second ago was, was about the his, sort of the history of societies and, and the religious stories that underlie mm-hmm. those societies and the, and the substructure of them. So I think of you know, Islam in the Middle East. I think of Judeo-Christian for um, Western society. I think of Hinduism for India, Buddhism for China. Uh, what are your thoughts about how those underlying narratives affect the long-term outcome of, the, of the, the well-being of those societies and the people that inhabit them. Well, first of all, all those narratives at some level tend to purge themselves, meaning they tend to move towards goodness and away from evil in one form or another. Some are horrific um, and use violence, uh, including the biblical story, use, use violence to that end, and some are exceptionally Pure, I think Buddhism is closer to a, a purer faith in terms of the issue of violence, although although it's it's intrinsic, I guess, in the experience of the monks, and I don't really... There's not a lot of violent Buddha. Yeah. There's, there's, I think, some cases, but it's not very common. Exactly. exactly. Um, and I, and I, I, first, I don't know what I'm talking about when we're talking in that area. I only know the broad, the broad picture. I mean, you both. <laughs> but having said that, the one thing that's interesting, I think, what, which makes me really like the Jesus story, is um, that it's ever enlarging, at least my experience of the Jesus story. In other words, it's the only, and I realize that we really push back against meta-narratives now because we want to respect the value of each cultural expression of the narrative, and that's, that's valid, except that I think all these, if there is a story that, that is large enough 
that all these other narratives ultimately fall into it, then that's the story I choose. And I think the Christian Judeo, the Judeo-Christian story is that story. You think it encompasses all the stories? Exactly. So that, so that at the end of the day, um, a, a, a person, a Muslim, who seeks the peace to know, to know this God of peace, that the, the Muslim faith that its heart talks about, even though it is rooted in a very violent narrative early and coming from one person's tradition. I mean, it really is. It's, it's unlike the biblical view that came out of, that was written over uh, 1,500 years or 1,000 years at least of experience. Um, this story really is rooted in a certain culture, a certain time, a certain man. Nevertheless, um, there are billions of Muslims today, and many of which, perhaps most of which, I don't know the stats, I don't know well enough, who have come to understand that God is good and God is peaceful. And I believe, I have no doubt, that either in this life, and of course they recognize Jesus, they don't recognize Jesus as the eternal Son of God, but as a prophet, and believe that the end of the age as they understand it will happen when Jesus returns. So we share that story. But I have no doubt on an individual basis that there will be millions, billions of Muslims who die in good faith, who are pursuing this goodness, just as you and I are, and who, if they haven't had the opportunity of awakening to the universe as it really is, and I'm getting to an answer to your question, uh, they, the, 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 when they see life beyond this 70 years, they will, they will say with Thomas of old, my Lord and my God. In other words, they will awaken to the God who is. And it will be Jesus's human experience, life, uh, teachings, uh, death, uh, passion, resurrection, ascension, and now praying in the heart of the Trinity and unfolding each of our individual narratives before the Father and the Spirit in a transformative way, that they will, they will realize they were never alone. And the cross was always present to them. And uh, God was hearing their prayers, not because the heart of Muslim is good, it's not, but because the heart of God is good. So I see the Christian story as the largest of all the stories I've heard. And I think it's unique in that. Um, and here's why. You talked about that all I know is I'm moving towards the good, and I've concluded that. It sounds to me like that is something that you know that you know, with all the doubts. It, it sounds to me that's probably the first given. It's, I would say it's something like self-evident. Yeah, exactly. And, but you also conclude that you'll probably never get there. Well, the Christian doctrine says we will. Um, so let me give two illustrations of that from the story. The Old Testament is all about not getting there. <laughs> and uh, there is, if you ever want to know the whole Old Testament... You mean failing over and over and yes, over and over? Yes. Yeah. But, but the, but the meta-narrative is God's response to those failures. And God consistently moving this exilic people. And, and here's what makes Judaism unique. Um, dare I say exceptional. <laughs> um, an outlier is that it's born of a people in exile. They were nomads who came into another people's land who by Abraham initially lived in peace. Then they did some things that were not peaceful, but they ultimately were strangers to the land and they became slaves and Egypt and they were in exile and they came out of exile to go back to their land. They, they did some horrific things taking control of their land um, and they believe God told them to do that. Um, whether or not that be the case, 
The truth is they were people who could never live into this incredible story. They could never, they were chosen as exiles because God wanted to honor them as exiles, as a marginalized community to say, I, I want you to give away my love to everyone else. Well, they never got the second half of that. They just tried to make the territory theirs and tried to own it for themselves, which I'm sounding like I'm condemning them. That's what I would have done. I, I'm, it's who we are. It's, 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 it's becoming aware of our consciousness without moving to our conscience. Something like the temptation to cultivate a community around a core set of values and then because people are by nature something like the tribal that you identify with the people that share your values but you tend to exclude anyone from the outside. And, and the immediate modern day example of that is Trump's America. We, I happen to think America in one level is exceptional. I think we're exceptional both in, the, in, in, in now I say that recognizing that that we displaced lots of marginalized people. We chose and said to the Native Americans, you're marginalized and we're stealing your stuff. We chose to tell African Americans, you're only four-fifths of a person. So, so I need to quickly qualify all that. But, but the, the idea that comes from Locke and Hume, from Hume to Locke and, and forward, that, that we are all special creation is, is, is an exceptional idea that government exists to serve. It's not the master of the gods or a god who puts masters over us. That, that's exceptional. That meaning, by exceptional, I mean it's better than anything else. I mean it's the outlier. It's, it's the exception to the rule. And in that sense, uh, today, uh, uh, you could, I think, argument, and there's lots, there's lots of uh, ways in which we have failed at this, but because of our isolation, with two oceans, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, we were given incredible privilege of growing as a nation and living into this ideal, however imperfectly we have done it, and we have. We've sinned, and, and our sin, our original sin is racism, it continues to this day, we feel the effects of it. Nevertheless, we were given an isolated context in which to grow, and we became the most prosperous nation in the world, so we became the empire. And now that we are the empire, we're beginning to say, we are first. We're beginning to show through Trump, I think, the exact uh, sin of arrogance that nations fall into when they don't recognize how vulnerable they actually are, even, even when they have, in many ways, a highly moralistic, and you can argue both ways in, but a higher moralistic uh, uh, foreign policy that actually does the, 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 um, the, the Marshall Plan in Europe and saves Europe from starvation and, and you know does some good things. Um, nevertheless, when we get enough power, we will we will we will do a lot of evil. So this is the, I'm glad you brought up the or segued into the the Trump stuff because one of the things that's sort of fun is when you disagree with somebody and you get to mm -hmm. figure out where it is. So this is something that, that I think you and I see from different mm -hmm. points of view. So. When it comes to the Trump stuff, like we've talked about in the past, mm -hmm. he's not my favorite guy. I, I think I it's from from a character perspective, um, the infidelity, the the it seems like the kinds of uh, you know personal conduct and, and relational stuff in his his family. The bullying, and, and the bullying, right? The, so the personal kind of stuff, it, I'm not a fan of. But when it comes to the actual policy and the way that he's tended to govern conservatively. One of the, just a slightly segue, I'll get right back to that, but one of the other things that's happened in the last couple of years is I've started to develop um, more into sort of the Christian values and see them for what they are. I've also developed politically from a liberal into a conservative. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if anybody, everybody takes that track. I think it is, I think it is kind of a cliche, and I, I think a lot of people do go through that, and I, 
that's where I am right now anyway. And so and the from, pushback I would give to you, that because my my friends who are of color as Jewers are, uh, would say to you, that's because you're privileged and white and you have the ability to make that transition and not face the downsides of it. Anyway, that's a valid pushback, though not necessarily Defined. Anyway. So, right. Well, so one of the things we were talking about earlier was just the idea that, yes, so people of color and plenty of white people would make that argument that I'm saying that because of my white privilege. What about all the people of color who would, who would say, no, it's, it's not all about skin color. It's much more about, it's about character. It's about values. It's about, mm -hmm. it's about the stuff that, that Christianity sets up. Christ about, sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where I've, that's where I've gotten my, you know, Christian or that's where I've gotten, I should say, my, my conservative values from, is you know, largely from the American creed. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the, the sovereignty of the individual, that it's, it's the, there, there shouldn't be any emphasis placed on immutable characteristics like color and gender as far as the government sure. is concerned, right? So I like all that. So, but I also had this idea Except in my head. Except to the extent that we would celebrate them. Uh, how do you mean? Except to the extent that we would celebrate cultural differences and differences in skin color, et cetera. There are things to celebrate inside all of our human experiences that are unique and different. I'm all for celebrating good sure. things, right? I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm simply agreeing with you at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So one of the things that, that I see people um, analyzing Trump's America as being is just, is just you know, fundamentally racist. Mm -hmm. And the examples of that would be something like the Muslim ban or mm -hmm. the wall or um, sanctuary cities, which is sort of like the wall as far as the legal immigration is concerned, and I don't see those as being, I don't, I don't see those as being fundamentally racist in any way. I see them as being much more about um, following law and order and about national security as far as as far as the Muslim ban and the wall are concerned. So, do you see those as being fundamentally racist, or are you talking about something else when you talk about Trump's America in that way? I think. First of all, I'm a conservative. I'm not a liberal. Um, that was the first question I should have asked you. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not get away too far from, from where we are. We, and we, this is all relevant. We'll pull it back. Um, so I share um, the concern with the rule of law specifically. My pushback is, as a follower of Jesus, that yes, it is fundamentally racist in this sense, not in the sense of skin, but in the sense of power and privilege. Um, because it really is about um, American jobs, uh, American um, wealth, uh, as opposed to our brothers and sisters south of the border who are coming out of chaos. And um, for, and now having said that, please understand, I agree with Trump when he says, you don't have a country if you don't have borders. And so I'm not actually in favor of open borders, but I'm also not in favor of going back to what was the status quo. Um, because I think I've, I've lived enough out in my own community here. We have um, probably 30%, 40% who uh, are coming from uh, immigrant communities. And so, and I only say that to say that my experience tells me that the American immigration system is really messed up. And in my view, Trump wants to make it more messed up in this center. I, if I were able to create the world I wanted to create, I would take Trump's ideal when he's talked about a very large door, and I would make it indeed a large door. 50% would be dedicated to people who are coming by merit, and 50% would be dedicated to people who are coming 
by refuge. If we have that reality, and we do not, but if we had that reality, then I would definitely close down the illegals, and, and those I would simply go through a process of giving them a choice. I don't think catch and release works. I think you really do have to say you have two choices. If you will stay together with your family while we investigate and we guarantee it won't go over 90 days, um, we're going to keep you in, in, in what you agree to be a confined space, mm -hmm. and then we're either going to ship you back to your country or you qualify for refuge. And if you qualify for refuge, we give you immediate legal status in. So you think that it should be, uh, as far as merit is concerned or refugee status is concerned, the, the primary ways that you can immigrate into the country? Yes. On, on okay. okay. And I think both should be given access. So what about illegal immigrants? Do you it's think the that's same? I think that when they come in illegally, you, you catch them, you detain them. If they're willing to be detained, if they're not willing, then you just you, you pay their fare back to their land of origin. But if they're willing to be detained with their family, while the United States government guarantees it, um, the, 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 the search, about 20% of those, they're telling us about 20% of the people who are coming out of the chaos of, of Guatemala and Nicaragua. Qualify for the refugee status. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, um, catch and release doesn't work because I think that, that you lose your border, you lose the country. So I think it's more, it's more about the basis of sort of a, a nationalism. I think that's, that's what Trump is looking for here. He wants some sort of physical right. border because a, a country without its borders isn't a country. And, and, and I believe, unlike most, and this is partly what makes me conservative, I believe in national sovereignty. I don't want the United States to come under the authority of, of, um, of the United Nations or even other, uh, like the EU, because they're not based on the constitutional principles we value. And if they were, then I would want that. I would want, I'd like the whole world It would be, be cool if the UN was yeah. promulgating United States exactly. creedal values. However that would they be, did, but if it was truly mm -hmm. democratic and republic, then I would, it's not sovereignty for itself, but I think it is the modern equivalent of protecting us. Having said that, what's unique in Trump, and the reason I say it's racist, is because it's about winners and losers. And with Trump, if you listen to him, it's all about winning and losing. And that is a fundamentally pagan idea. And it's an antichrist idea. Um, and I agree with you about 40% to 50% of the outcomes from his decisions. I'll even go higher. I probably agree with 60% of the stuff he decides. But it is so, in my view, corrupted by him that, and I think the Republican Party is being changed in profoundly damaging ways. I cannot support him. I tell, I tell people, see, I voted for him. I tell people that. Um, I genuinely regret that vote. I am genuinely grateful I voted that way, and I will never vote that way again. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the, that's a whole mess. Okay, so, so, so I don't mean to keep back. pinning you back, but, oh, but okay, I, do, I, do, I do not see where the, the racism comes in. I, I see what you say by the winners and losers, but if it is about because American world, nationality, because, I don't see how race comes into it. Because if we were all truly had equal access, and money did not matter, and skin color did not matter, then it would not have racial underpinnings. But that's not the real America we live in. I, I was in a political conversation today with two persons of color. I was arguing from a conservative perspective. They were arguing from a more liberal perspective. And it was an awesome play. In this church, we actually can debate these issues. Which it's is cool, because it's a hard thing to do it's nowadays, right? It's extremely hard to do these right. things. And so we were having this intense conversation and hearing each other and learning. 
And at one point, I was talking about it because, because I was asked, well, why do evangelical Christians like Trump so much? Which I think is a good question. And I think spiritually, I just told you why it's not sustainable and, and should not be. And I, I get that, too, because like I said, his character is, a, is the problem. It's more than a personal character. It's political philosophy. It's political underpinnings. And I don't think his, he has a political philosophy. Well, ultimately, his philosophy is, is ultimate capitalism. And I believe capitalism is a good thing, not a bad thing, but his is capitalism of the winners and losers. His is a Darwinian capitalism at its, at its heart, and um, rather than an, a Christocentric capitalism, um, which, which was totally aware of social. Sounds more like a, that sounds more like the, the culture that uses the capitalism more than, than a philosophy. Like it is, it is, absolutely. And, and uh, um, I mean, we could go sideways and stay on this deal and, and, and we can do it now or, or hold it for some other time. Some other time, you, you keep going with what we're talking about. Let's, but, but the truth is, Moses, inspired by God at some level, um, actually gave God's economy and God's political posture for Israel was incredible in, in, in allowing for the best of capitalism and the best of socialism. It was an incredible social contract that God wanted for the people of Israel. They never lived into. They got the capitalist side, but to get the social contract, which in short venue meant that every seven years, all debts had to be settled. You couldn't have a contract loan that went past seven years. And slaves had to be freed after seven years if they were Israeli slaves. And every 49 years, all property went back to the tribe to be equally redistributed. Mm -hmm. So there was a refreshing of, of the capitalistic model. So coming all the way back forward, in Ezekiel, chapter 16, if you read that chapter, you read the, the whole Old Testament in one narrative. And in it, God tells, I won't go through the story, but God tells Israel something profound, which is they didn't get the fact that, they never got the fact that they were the marginalized, exilic people God chose because they were marginalized and exilic. And God reminds them, I chose you not because you were cool. I chose you because you were considered uncool. I found you, he says in imagery, as a baby whose, whose umbilical cord was, was, let, was cut and left to die in the desert because you were a woman and whoever your father was did not want you. And I picked you up and I nurtured you. And so the, the, that story begins with that imagery. And then he says, he uses the oldest Old Testament symbol of the ultimate of evil, Sodom and Gomorrah. And except Israel, Ezekiel turns it on its head. And he says, you think you're better than your sister Sodom? And, you're, and, uh, and the Samaria was the other one, the north of Israel. That was when they came away from exile. Uh, the people who stayed there were now a mixed community. Uh, and Israel never accepted them because Assyria had brought in foreigners with foreign gods. And, and so they never accepted northern Israelis uh, as, as Israelis. They weren't pure enough. And um, so he says, you think that you're better than Samaria? whom you have a prejudice against, and God forbid, Sodom and Gomorrah, when they're really your sisters. And then he says, you're worse than they are. And he says, you want to know the sin of Sodom? The sin was, they became arrogant, they did not take care of their poor, they let injustice happen, and they did sensual things that were filled with violence. That's what the text says. And uh, so he was, so God, in Ezekiel, God was reframing the narrative and saying, now, and then he goes on to explain how Israel has done all these things and more. And then it comes to the end of the chapter and God says, I've come to a conclusion. You can't ever get good enough. Going back to your personal story. Mm -hmm. My personal story. So I'm going to atone for you. 
and a part of the way I'm going to atone is I'm going to make you so ashamed of what you've become. And then when I redeem you, I will also redeem Sodom. I will redeem Samaria. And it's right there in the text. And they will become your daughters. That's, that's like turning your worst nemesis all around. Into God, your closest relation. Yeah, into the closest possible adoption. And then God says, I myself will make atonement for you. And the chapter ends. That's the Christian narrative. John pins it this way in the New Testament. We don't know what we shall be, but we know this. When he, Jesus, shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, the appearing isn't when we're caught up to go away to a place called heaven. The appearing is when the kingdom of God finally comes to earth. And so there is at the heart of the Christian Jewish message from God that we will become fully human. We will be restored. Justice will inhabit the earth. And there will be a day when we won't have to keep perfecting ourselves because perfecting not in the sense of ultimate mathematical, I've achieved everything I can, but perfection in the sense of being whole, complete, in the sense of coming into the fullness of what it is to be human. It's going to happen. And that, again, is what makes me think this story is the one story, and it's unique in, in the most other profound sense, the salvation doesn't come from us getting better. Mm -hmm. Salvation comes from a God who fully identifies with the worst in us, embraces it, and says, now let me work within you by my spirit to change you. And so when you, when you, when you look at something like how foreign policy for a, a country should be structured. Mm -hmm. You're thinking of that story. I am. You want you want it to be, you want it to be laid out such that we can allow for that to happen across borders. So, yes, exactly. One and of the if things that's not inherent in the story because in Israel they were required and they did live into this. They were required to leave the leanings, the last ten percent of the land for the poor. I mean, there's there's whole our whole the, the American. Uh, philosophy of uh, chapter 13, chapter 7, comes straight out of Judeo-Christian, Judeo really Judeo-ethics. comes out of this idea that you can get yourself in so much financial trouble, there's no way out but forgiveness. So that's a very, that's a very God thing. And, and once we leave those higher values to pursue raw capitalism, which is power, we're in deep trouble. And why I am not an atheist at the end of the day is it's all about power. If it's all about simple, I'm going back to where we start, if it's nothing more than atoms exploding, you and I are, at the end of the day, nothing more than that. It doesn't matter if I take your life or I keep it. Does it, it there's no ultimate moral ramification there. I am aware that you're conscious of it, and that's too bad for you, but I, conscience is a different issue. I, I can afford conscience if I choose to afford it, because at the end of the day, your morality and my morality are co-equal. If on the other hand, Pregnant inside every molecule of the universe is God, who is good and only good, who watches and lives within, gives vast freedom to let us be who we choose to be, but, but watches and lives and ever moves us toward a new story. That's a universe I want to live in. That's a universe I can believe in. That's a universe I can give myself away to. The other universe, I have no desire to. I agree that the materialistic universe is it's not very compelling. It's not, it doesn't ha the, the narrative isn't, it's not romantic. It's sort of, it's dead. There's, there's nothing in it, right? If it's, yeah. if the universe is empty, then the, if the universe is empty, what's the point? 
That makes sense and to me. And our awareness of the stars tells us it's not so. The very fact that we can look in the heavens and we see something that reflects who we are, with something that our hearts expand over, tells us that we are more than molecules. Yeah, it's almost like it's it's almost like if you just go around using your rationality to try and understand everything you could you can intellectually convince yourself of a materialistic universe. But that's just using, you know, your, your surface tools. If you are brave enough to go a little bit deeper with yourself and start to acknowledge the realities of the things that you feel and, and how the status of your relationships impact your well-being and the well-being of others and literally how well your world is going is 99% how you're actually interacting with other human beings. If you can acknowledge that, then I think that for me, that's what shatters the illusion of the materialistic world. And if that's true, and this may be the gem of this, this may be the only value out of this conversation, it's really incredibly valuable. If that is true, then the most aboriginal faith with the least amount of awareness, but nevertheless has goodness at its center and creates community, creates life, and creates and protects the weak is far better than the most knowledgeable, rational, scientific mind that is void of that. So this is what I think Dostoevsky just brilliantly illustrates in the, the, at least the two novels that I've read of his, The Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment, mm -hmm. where he lays out in, in both books, they're, it's this, they're, sort of like, they're sort of like murder mysteries. They're, they're, both, mm -hmm. they're both sort of revolve around a murder and uh, in Crime and Punishment, it's this guy Raskolnikov who is this hyper-rational intellectual and he thinks that the, the Nietzschean idea of the Superman is, mm -hmm. is a realistic thing and so he, he conspires to conduct a murder, he goes through with the murder, accidentally murders a couple of people, and then the rest of the book is all about how his, his conscience is just basically tearing him apart until mm -hmm. he finally turns himself in and very end of the book he, he opens his eyes to God and he sees this woman that he realizes that he's in love with and he commits to starting a new life on a new path once he's out of prison. Beautiful, beautiful book. And mm. it's all about overcoming, you know, the rational for the deeper, more intimate reality of the spiritual. And the Brothers Karamazov is kind of the, the same thing. It's just this family and there's a bunch of brothers. And actually, I relate to it a lot because you know, I'm from a family with a bunch of brothers. And it's funny because all the brothers have these different personalities. And so there's like Avon, he is the hyper-rational intellectual powerhouse. He's just the most perfect atheist. And then his brother, the little brother, Alyosha, has grown up in the church and he's been, you know, he, he's been watching this father of the church as he's grown up and he doesn't have the same kind of intellectual prowess as his brother, Avon, but over the course of the book, you see how Avon sort of starts to kind of like lose his mind just living in this rationalist worldview of everything because he can't make sense with all of the with all the very real human emotion going through him as his family goes through all this turmoil and um, mm -hmm. inner fighting and everything but Alyosha remains like a steady rock throughout it and it's just it's fascinating to to understand through this piece of fiction being able to see you know my own track through life and my own understanding and and be able to understand how important these these ideas that don't seem to be discussed very much anymore on yeah. the surface of, especially in our society, in our culture, it, it does seem like, I didn't, I'm not very old, I'm, I'm 27, and so I was born in 1990, and I grew up in a very materialistic world. I, 
I never really went to church. My dad was Christian. He always had the Bible on the on the the, the uh, nightstand, but we never really talked about these ideas. This and school never talked about these ideas. Like we uh, we we went over some basic history and and some basic uh, religious stuff, but we never got into the weeds about what you know any of these different religions really said about how to conduct yourself or about you know, moral philosophy or, or any of that. And it wasn't about character, it was just about facts. Mm-hmm. And that didn't help construct individuals really at all. It's just, I, I feel like I got out of high school and I was just, I had no idea what to do. And I went into college and I got through college and I was just like, okay, and I know a bunch of stuff, but I have no idea what to do. And it really wasn't until I started thinking about these ideas that we're talking about that it, it's, it's almost like the world started to finally see it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, do you agree that you, you're, how old are you? I'm old. Is, she, is, that, is that a rude question? 65. No, no, that's, 65. That's so, so you were born then in, uh, in uh, 53. Okay, so how, I'm really curious to ask your point of view that how have you seen American culture change from 53 up till now? Well, I can't tell you how I've seen American culture change. I can tell you how I've seen American culture change, though. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then go ahead. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not smart enough to tell you always has changed, but I can, I can tell you. When I was a kid, the thing that I liked most about America was the back seat of our car. Um, it was huge. There were no seat belts. That's why, to this day, I will not wear seat belts. Um, it, was, it was a world of imagination and play. You could get up as a toddler and sleep in the back window because the cars were huge. Yeah. You could play with your army uh, tanks and deals in the back seat and your feet was on the ground because there was plenty of space. I mean, your knees were on the ground because there was plenty of space between the front and back seat. And Ike was president and the world was secure and it's the only world I knew and it was totally white. I was unaware uh, that there were people hurting. That was a great America. Um, so two things have happened. I've become keenly aware over the years that there are a lot of people who through the Constitution of the United States, though it is an incredible document, in fact, because of skin color and because of cultural factors, uh, do not experience and never have experienced the same America. And to simply tell them, and here's where Republicans miss it, in my view, simply tell them to pull himself up by the uh, the bootstraps, the, yeah. the old yeah. adage, yeah. Misses, misses the very systemic and subtle, and here's what, I, white privilege is real. I was not aware of that until I became a minister. Um, I was not aware until I came to Seattle, uh, first of all, that had any prejudices. And then suddenly when I was in a, in a very, I became keenly aware of how prejudiced I personally am. Uh, and, and so it's been a whole story of letting those things fall. So I became keenly aware of race in ways that in my white America, I wasn't worried about. And um, I, I, I know the stories. I, I, that when I'm on a bus, and I rarely am because I'm privileged to drive, um, but, but, but I know that when, when black men get on that bus or Samoans get on that bus, suddenly the bus is transformed and everybody tightens up and pulls in and protects the purses and, and just, it, it's just, it's, you, can, you can feel like I walk into stores with salons and um, whereas I would never think about anybody following or suddenly clerks being more aware. I become aware that, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of awareness that goes on 
and it's not it's subtle, but it's profound. When I walk into a restaurant, and I'm with I'm with a fellow minister who is a Samoan, and he has a master's degree, and I haven't even graduated from college. Um, yet I will always be the one that's asked how many is in our deal. Next yeah, year, I read that in your, one of your if, passages, one of your books. Actually, you're if, going to that if, example. Or if we're in a meeting of pastors. He will never, his voice, even though he's one of the wisest men I know in the world, will never be the first answer. And he won't because, he, because, because his culture tells him he must give respect and he, he can only be asked or whatever. He will never be asked to the table. So worrying about equal opportunity isn't sufficient. The liberals are right. The equal outcomes has to play a role to change this thing. Now, how, how do you enforce? So to well, me, that's the dilemma. equal outcome seems like, so we're, we were talking about, earlier about, talking about aiming control. for aiming for perfection and you'll never reach it. To me, this is where if you put too many constraints in the system, you try to force something like equal outcome, then you get, you get absolute totalitarianism. And, and agreed. And that was the essence, by the way, of my debate this morning. My debate was over Jimmy Carter. And, and what caused the fall of, of, uh, night, of 2008. And, and I argued, because they weren't aware of this, because I was alive when they weren't alive, um, but they were still half right. I argued that what skewed it was Carter's desire in, in the marketplace to make room for persons who could not afford to have their own house to, to, to have opportunity to buy in to the system. And they did it the way Democrats always do it, by regulation. And that skewed the marketplace until it was ballooning and out of control. And the regulations, which always happens when you have it, this is the problem when you focus on outcomes. Mm -hmm. but, I, but, I don't, but there's no solution except the one I'm about to give you. Um, so, and so then when later the Republicans got in control, they removed the constraints so that they could re, because the system was gonna fall apart. So that instead, these major banks simply took a bunch of bad loans, hid them under good loans, and handed them off to third parties. And they escaped the consequences, and other people had to pay the, the piper. And so the liberals are right when they say deregulating caused it. Well, they're not ultimately right, because what ultimately caused it was federal intervention into the system mm -hmm. and the regulations in the first place. Because the system protects itself in that. So there's only one way that I know how to do it, and that is to give buy-in capital. The problem with capitalism is you need capital. And so I have always believed as a Republican that I'm, I happen to be a Nixonian Republican who believes in what he proposed as a national minimum wage. I don't care if people are lazy or not lazy. I only want everybody to have the same, the same actual capital beginning. So I would invest every child born in this country uh, with with $1,000 for the first 10 years into accounts they can't control, two different accounts, one for retirement and one for education. And, and so that we, critical moments make real, by money, make real outcome changes. So that, and, that sounds like an extension of equal opportunity because how do you force is, how do you force those you kids can, I, when they turn believe, 18 to not right just squander all the money and so and so wouldn't you get the same right. problem well, well first of all i think that's a, a terribly pessimistic view of what would happen the answer is you will get that if you create a welfare system that 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 you have a whole layer of bureaucracy trying to control the outcomes 
and making sure people are spending their money correctly. That's what we have. And then yes, you're gonna come, you're gonna raise whole generations down that line. But if instead what you did is you recognize, I just believe Republicans have to pay attention to outcomes. We have to pay attention to race and skin because it is true, the whole segments of our culture are outside of that story. And therefore, the way you equalize it, again, has to be on the opportunity side. We can't ultimately guarantee the outcome, but we can sure shift the ground level. And we have to recognize that it's not level and find ways to do that. So if I were Carter, I would have simply paid for the vast majority of those loans, uh, paid all the upfront costs, and bought the houses and with a, with a buy-in capacity as their income levels changed. Uh, there are ways to do it that doesn't regulate, and it's the regulation and the control that when you focus on outcomes. Okay, so, so you're against the government intervention thing. That's I sort am, of the concern. I'm not against government intervention. I want government intervention. I don't want government control. I want government money, and therefore I have no problem with the government taking from Peter and giving to Paul. I think that should be built into the So you are for like a redistribution sort of welfare? Absolutely, but not not through a system of welfare. I just, I just, I really, I really am a believer in the minimum wage and the minimum income. I think if every American had guaranteed income, those of, uh, those who choose to be creative and live above it is where the income will come from, and that's great. And those who choose not to, uh, and if they squander it, then it becomes the church's problem. Do you think that that minimum wage should reflect some sort of minimum living standard yes. as well? So I'm guessing you, you wouldn't be satisfied with the current minimum wage. I don't mean minimum wage, I'm sorry. I mean minimum national income. I think every American should be, uh, should be gifted through the federal, uh, uh, with, a, with an income guaranteed at about forty to 60000 depending on which part of the, the nation they live in. And, um, uh, and, and that uh, whether they work or not, that it's a guaranteed income, and then it frees up their time to do incredibly productive things that they can, they can do and live on top of it. it. It's all I know is that you have to destroy most of the welfare state to make that work. But I, but the Cato Institute, which is a conservative institute, has done the studies on it, and they say it would save us billions of dollars if you got rid of most of the federal managed welfare programs and you simply transferred income. The, the America would be a more prosperous place because the money would then go back into the economy instead of the pockets of bureaucrats. And, um, and we would all benefit. I don't see how, how that, that's any different from welfare or how you would avoid l laundering money through a bureaucratic, um, what would you call it? a bureaucracy to be able to funnel that money to families because, that you're sending Because you're to. reducing all the, uh, you have to be breathing and alive to qualify. So you are getting rid of all of the, the things that, that have to do with control. We don't give welfare to dead people though. Okay, so so you, you're still going to have a bureaucracy, but it's going to be like 10% of the current bureaucracy to manage it. You think so? So uh, to me, I, I immediately picture the idea of giving 40 to 60,000 to families, you know, baseline, just regardless of, of what they do, just sort of as like a government stipend. Would That sounds catastrophic. It would, that would bankrupt our... They, all I can tell you is Cato, again, a conservative institute, it was, first of all, proposed initially by, by uh, Nixon. And um, Cato Institute has taken it seriously and ran with it, and the numbers, the numbers work out. It's a sustainable program. But you do have to get rid of the whole welfare system to make it work. I can't, I, I have no idea about the Cato Institute or anything, but I'll look into it, because I'm curious, because I, I can't picture, that just, that just sounds like, that just sounds like welfare See, on really steroids, indiscriminate will, welfare. If people have access to income, I think they will 
by and large, do good things with it. Well, let me ask you this question. Though. Then the church can do what it's supposed to do with the broken wounds of humanity where we addict ourselves to things and, and waste it. That's the role of the church. That we, can, we can enter into those areas mm -hmm. instead that, of the government trying to control it. And that is, a, that is a, an invaluable service that churches provide to communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually that's something that, uh, this is like the third time I've said this, but just something else I've sort of realized is um, a couple years ago, I just didn't have a really good understanding of the value or the, or, or the well, the value that religion gives to society, gives to the individual, the community and everything, and, and Christianity, in my view, in particular, as being the, the best example of what a religion can give to a community and to an individual. Um, it just blew my mind when I kind of finally understood what the role of religion is and has been since its conception. And, and I just, I see churches now in, in a, such a, a whole new light. I just... I really appreciate you know anybody like yourself who just has committed his life to building relationships and trying to help people. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's like the most human thing. So I'm, I'm gonna stop incredible. stop praising you for a second and, and then. Oh no, keep then, it on. Okay. <laughs> no, it is it is incredible. I have rarely gotten paid for it. <laughs> if you're really paid for it, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> Speaking of being paid for, so well. So earlier I was asking the question about different religions and meta narratives underneath this substructure to mm -hmm. uh, to societies, and in my view, the Judeo-Christian meta narrative under the the Western societies has has led to what looks like and feels like the greatest flourishing for individuals and communities that we've ever seen. And I think it's something like unprecedented luxury. It's just like we can sit in air conditioning and and slurp down smoothies and coffee and tea and steak and whatever it is and have this conversation in near perfect security, something like that. It's really nice. As long as we're willing to acknowledge that there's 20% of our sisters and brothers who cannot in fact do that. And you think that that's based upon a systemic oppression from- That's at least true. Now, to whatever- Is it extent, exclusively? No, well, no, you wouldn't say that. Of course not. Um, and, 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 but, but it's, all I'm saying is that, that this country really is built for white Americans. And I, I, I didn't see that 20 years ago. I now see it so clearly. And that's real, and that has to be faced by all of us. Now, once we face that, I agree with you. Western values um, are, I'm not going to say that they're the best because I've seen too many really great values coming out of other traditions, specifically Samoan, that are in many ways far more biblical than, than Euro-Christian ways of seeing the world. Uh, having said that, Euro-Christian ways of seeing the world do tend to um, help the individual and do tend to make achievers and do tend to result in prosperity. So I, I give you that, and that's the, the, and I want to keep that. I don't want to lose that. I agree, and it's you not know, the back to your question. and it's not the only goal either. So one of the things that right. one of the things that I, that I'm thinking about that I'd like to acknowledge is that I don't think that prosperity is the only thing worth striving for. I, I think that the Western system, as it is predicated on the values that it is, really, as far as relative to the other societies, it maximizes the opportunity for achievers, right, and for the individual. Yeah. But it's not exclusively the thriving of the individual that's the most important. It, you also, I mean, human beings have an absolute necessity for 
relationships with other people. We need community. And so... Well, let's build on that. Uh, have you ever heard of Maslow's um, uh, hierarchical... No, but you mentioned that earlier in, in the car, so I wanted yeah. to... So, so basically, the thesis is that we, that we have a series of needs, and the first and lowest is safety and personal security and safety. And once that's met, uh, actually, I'm sorry, that's the second. I think the first is existence, food, uh, basic biological needs. Uh, they would, he might even put sex in there. Uh, then you have safety issues. And then beyond that, you, you go up. And once these needs are met, humans tend to strive towards a higher level of consciousness, which is consciousness. And then you have needs of, of self-esteem. And then you have needs of purpose beyond self-esteem. Consciousness, you have needs of, of actual purpose and then altruistic. And then until you get these, you can't get to these. And where that relates to the issue of skin is this. It, it is clearly true that if I was African American, I would want to be born in 2018 rather than uh, 1818. It's a different world. Um, and, and comparing uh, the United States of America today to that United States, I'll choose this United States at all, but it's also true that in that world, just simply getting my food and, and safety was all they had going for it. So, so once you get once you get the Fourteenth Amendment and you get access by where the law cannot treat you by skin color, which I, I agree that is the ideal that we should be we should not be conscious of color in terms of legal entities. I, I totally agree with that ultimately. Uh, that's the end run, that's the goal, that's the highest precedence. But nevertheless, today, if skin actually still lives, and there is such a thing as white privilege, which is real, and is systemic, and affects persons of color in a prejudicial way, then we're talking about needs that have to do with self-esteem, and the ability to move towards the higher levels. And my argument is, that's no less important than it was for their ancestors for basic safety. Now, at one level, it's very different. Uh, and, and so we all would agree. And so we who are white tend to say, so what is your problem? In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of school districts should be ended. And by 1960, it was. So what is your problem, black America? Well, black America comes back and says, because it's not all about basic needs. It's also about purpose and identity and the ability to move into it. And we live in a community whose who's great-great-great-grandfathers were decimated by slavery. And children were sold and stolen from and given to others. And so that whole system of familial, familial structure, which the church held together for a long time, uh, is now, and which actually protected, even was the worst of slave owners, often protected them. That is, is in modern America, is, is now almost non-existent, and you don't have that two-parental support. And those are real, there's real outcomes. The real ability to access outcomes is, is directly impacted. Now, it may be impacted at the higher levels of Maslow's theory rather than the lower levels, but they're no less important. I think we who are conservatives have to take that into view and have to address that. For example, we who are white can, can, can live at levels, at the two highest levels, but if we were persons of color, we are still very much in a safety mode. Uh, our, our communities aren't safe. Um, there aren't enough in the African-American communities, uh, black males who are father figures who are keeping things safe. 
Um, so, so I'm just saying that we're approaching the same world at different levels, and we have to recognize that that is that it's, it's it, well, it is good or bad, but it's not so much good or bad; it's just true, and and we have to acknowledge that. And so, if you have a president that comes along and demagogues the issue of Mexican Americans, or Mexicans rather, coming across the border, and say, well, they don't send us our best; they send us our worst, and makes makes race and skin at the heart of the issue. Um, and if I was a person of Mexican descent, or if I was a Samoan, or if I was a black, I would, I, would, I would never hear that president in any other way than issues of race. I couldn't hear that president. I couldn't afford to hear that president in any way but through race. Especially if the larger, worst part of the culture was picking up on that, and suddenly issues that hadn't been there like KKK for generations are suddenly popping up on college campuses, which is happening. And you suddenly have, uh, we have people in our own church that, that have been told in public uh, by uh, other white people saying, and they're Americans, they are, these are people who are second, third generation Americans, that have been saying to them because they're of Spanish descent, uh, you, 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 you get out Joanna of here. You, you, you have no future in this place. Um, and I'm sorry, but there's just enough stories that tell me this president is changing the environment. And though it be a higher spiritual level, it's no less real and no less powerful. And I can see on an individual basis how this could be the case, but I don't see it as, as being something you can paint with the broad brush of saying whites as a class experiences this privilege, people of color as a, a class experience this um, this lack of privilege, because you see so many individual examples of of people. So, for instance, America has the highest number of people of color who are billionaires, say, mm -hmm. on the planet. So, I'm, I'm not saying that, you're, that you would say that America is a, a systemically racist society, but it does seem to me to be something like I'm gonna I'm gonna tie this into what we were talking about before. So, as I, as an individual, am always pursuing the ideal, knowing that I will never actually achieve it, but I'm at least shooting for something. I have the mechanism within me to constantly make revisions and micro-adjustments so that the, tomorrow I can be slightly closer to it. Now, because people move through time, or, or at least that's how we understand ourselves and the universe, I see societies as being very much like individuals, just massive conglomerations of individuals, sort of structured by the creed of that country. So. The American creed and the American constitution, which I also agree is a very good document, allows for a lot of flexibility and amendments so we can change. Like obviously we, we had institutionalized slavery at the founding of our country and we've moved away from that. So um, six years ago, I was a lot crummier of a guy than I am now. I've moved away from that. Mm -hmm. And so I also see societies as making changes over the long term. And so it, it would be, Great, and maybe we're moving towards in the next hundred years or something where we see a you know a a full um, even split among all of the races in terms of you know prosperity, mm -hmm. which I, I think you would if that maybe is what you're talking about for equal outcome, then that makes sense to me. But yes, that but is I, what we're talking about. I also think that if that you know in recognizing human nature for what it is and wanting to limit government tyranny, then then with the hands-off, don't constrain the individual approach, you're going to absolutely see disparities among individuals because people are not all 
equal. There's no question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that for a second. However, the only pushback I would give is twofold. One, I, um, we think in, in the Western culture, we tend to think by, in terms of individuals. Most other cultures do not. They really do think in, in, um, in other words, most Samoans I know. I was going to ask you this. If first it's the Samoans. Yeah, is the Samoan thing more what you've learned from that as a community? Yeah, oriented? and that's true among Native Americans uh, because that's the other population groups that I've become familiar with. So they don't, they do not, for example, um, in the tragedy, I, I've witnessed tragedy. Uh, as a pastor, I deal with guilt and mm -hmm. shame. So if I'm dealing with a white person, I'm going to focus on the issue of guilt, particularly after I've discovered who they are. And if they come from a Catholic background or, or have, depending on how, what form their morals, I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with issues of forgiveness and repentance in, in mostly a guilt-laden way. I would not do that with a Samoan young woman or man. Because it's not so much about personal, because, because in my experience, they're not thinking primarily in terms of, I have offended some cultural or personal uh, law or God's law and therefore I'm guilty before God. They're thinking, I have shamed my mother and my father. I have shamed my community. I have failed them. So I'm gonna deal with the issues of shame, not guilt. And, and those play significant roles um, that the American legal system isn't, isn't, uh, isn't used to. So I'm just saying there are reasons why, why the outcomes in school settings, and the stats are pretty clear, that, that, that black men who act out in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, are extended to usually it becomes an issue of police. Whereas the same men, if they're white men, it never gets to the level of police. There is something that triggers that. And it's not, you can't answer it on the individual behavior. There is something systemic that's, that's doing that. There's something in the way we perceive each other. Um, and I just had become sensitive to that in a way that I was not. Fair enough. And that's something that is on my mind, but something that I haven't thought nearly enough about. And it, like many things, I'll spend the next rest and, of my life trying to sort out. In this conversation with two white guys, uh, both generally conservative, uh, though you may now have discovered that you don't think I'm any longer conservative, but I still think <laughs> it's conservative. Um, that's interesting, but if we would have had a person of color inside this conversation, um, this conversation would have gone different directions. And that's because, because if they're coming from a tribal community, the thinking is different, the feeling is different, the experience is different. Waking up and going to school is different. Um, and it's just the infor. So, so you're talking to somebody who is experiencing that through another person's eyes, but doesn't know the experience. I literally do understand that I am privileged. I, mean, I am a white guy and, um, Older generations of Samoans will only honor me because I'm white. Whereas younger generations will critically look upon me because they are now aware that, of that difference. And to be clear too, I also recognize that I'm privileged, but not in the sense that I'm white, but in the sense that I'm an American and I experience a, a tremendous amount of privilege just by being a part of this culture and the society sure. that I am. Sure. I just see the the, I just see the way that race plays into it much differently, I think, than you do. Yeah, I'm, I, my argument is you can't separate them. Hmm. Should we end it there? I think so. I think it's great. I've enjoyed this immensely. 
I have two. This is fantastic. They, my wife I am, and I need to get back to her. She did, and that would be that's appropriate too. That's a good idea. So uh, thank you very much for sitting down with me, and um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I wish you well on your podcast. Uh, I don't know your brother, but I know your heart, and uh, you've got some good stuff in you, and I hope it takes off. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Boisterous, episode four. If you're interested in more of Terry Matson's thoughts and opinions, I would suggest checking out his blog called Terry Matson: Musings of a Pastor from a Place in Between. Terry is also the author of a numerous selection of books, I believe seven in total, and I, the eighth is on the way, and they are available for download on Amazon. If you just go into Amazon and type in his name, Terry Matson, they should be readily available for you. Thank you.